Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson. Is it good to be with you today? It's been several days since I've been with you, but I am glad to be back. And we're going to be picking up where we left off last time. We were talking about Ezekiel chapter 28. And um, we were when we left off last time, we had been talking about how there are earthly rulers, like human government rulers. But then there's like the spiritual rulers over places. And, you know, and there's that scripture in Ephesians 6 where it talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this dark world and the heavenly realms. Um, let me look that up. And it's, it's uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And here it says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and against authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So we have earthly rulers. There's no doubt about that. We've got kings, we've got governments, we've got presidents, we've got prime ministers, on and on and on. Um, and in some... Uh, Parts of the world, we and I'm not even going to go there. Oh, I'm trying to um, behave myself already. <laughs> but i um, trying to keep the headlines out of this a little bit. But uh, if we go to Ezekiel 28, we see an example of this. And since our chapter, we're in Genesis chapter 3, and we've been learning about the... Uh, We've been doing what's been called a profile of the serpent in our last two episodes. Well, this time we're going to be looking at a message to the king of Tyre. And this is connected to chapter 3 because it's about the serpent. It's about Satan. It's about Lucifer. And if we go to Ezekiel chapter 28, it's a message for the king of Tyre. And I started reading this last time when my time ran out. So that's what I'm going to pick up from. I'm going to start over with verse 1. And you'll see how this is talking about a particular king of Tyre. But then watch what is said about him as it continues on. It says here, Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, give the prince of Tyre this message from the sovereign Lord. Now it's Ezekiel 28 and 1 verse 2. In your great pride, you claim I am a God. Did you ever hear anybody say that? I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea, but you are only a man and not a god. Though you boast that you are a god, you regard yourself as wiser than Daniel and think no secret is hidden from you. With your wisdom and understanding, you have amassed great wealth. Gold and silver for your treasuries? Mm. Sorry, I on there. Okay, anyway, sorry about that. Ugh. With your wisdom and understanding, you have amassed great wealth, gold and silver for your treasuries. Yes, your wisdom has made you very rich, and your riches have made you very proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are as wise as a god, I will now bring against you a foreign army, the terror of the nations. They will draw their swords against your marvelous wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die in the heart of the sea. 
pierced with many wounds, will you then boast, I will you then boast, I am a God to those who kill you? To them you will be no God, but merely a man. You will die like an outcast at the hands of foreigners. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. And then the message continued in verse 11. So it conti- and then it continues on in verse 11. As I open my Pepsi here, because man doesn't live by bread alone. There's also Pepsi. He's a heretic. He just changed God's word. Well, anyway, um, all right. So verse 11, this continues and then it switches. I want you to notice the difference here. Then this further message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre. Uh, he's singing somebody alive. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. But then look how this switches. Because this is, is this still talking about the king of Tyre? Or is this talking about something entirely different? Is this talking about who we've been studying for the last couple of podcasts? You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Was the king of Tyre in Eden? Was he in the garden of God? No. Who was? Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. Red carnelian. Pale green peridot. White. Let's see. Um, pale green peridot. White moonstone. Blue green beryl. Onyx green jasper. Blue lapis. Lazuli. Turquoise and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. This was no longer talking about the king of Tyre. Remember, we talked about how there's human rulers and then there's the angelic princes behind the rulers. And then depending on which side you're serving would give us a hint as to what type of angelic being is behind you. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence, and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from the place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire from from out from within you, and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All who knew you are appalled at your fate. You have come to a terrible end, and you will, it will exist no more. So it seems to go back and forth there, where it's talking about the king of Tyre, and then it's talking about, seems to be talking about Satan, because he was in the garden. And then it seems to go back to talking about the king of Tyre again. 
God is referring to them, though the prophet is referring to them for God, and he's doing it sort of interchangeably. He goes from one back to the other, back to the other, like this seamless transition that like both are being spoken to at the same time. Um, it's like when uh, Peter tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, and, and Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. And and people are like, and I've said this too, well, he just called Peter Satan. Well, did he? Or was he talking about the one that was encouraging Peter to Peter's lack of knowledge? There's there's a lot to untangle there. And I think, you know, we... Um, I think that there's a, a lesson to be had there for talking about how there you know, we have this angelic being behind the earthly ruler and the prophet is speaking to both of them and it's the same today we have earthly rulers today but we also have the angelic realm operating all around us so what is influencing or encouraging or discouraging certain things that's not to say that leaders don't have a free will and they're completely the pu the puppets of the puppet masters, which are the angelic beings. I'm not saying that. Human free will does play a role in all this, but we are influenced by the spiritual warfare that goes on around us and we influence the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. And so it's important that we remember that and keep that in mind. Just because we can't see what's going on around us doesn't mean that it's that it's not real. In fact, some would say it's more real than what we see. So this gives us a it gives us insight into Satan's origin and status before he actually became the enemy of God and thus our enemy. And so when we think about all we've observed about the, ser the serpent of old, the devil, we've learned a lot and that we can apply to our lives. And the first thing I would say is something that I've heard often preached and something that I'm going to repeat is that if Satan will twist, twist scripture with God, he'll twist it with us. Because he remember in G, in the wilderness, in Matthew chapter four and Luke chapter four, Satan comes to Jesus when he's in the wilderness, being tempted, or he he's in the wilderness for forty days and nights, and he was Jesus was led there by the Holy Spirit just so he could be tempted by the devil during that time. Lead you know, and then what's one of the things we pray to God in what's called the Lord's prayers? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, God wouldn't lead us into temptation. Well, I mean, there it is. But yeah, he. Um, but if Satan tried to twist Scripture with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there's no reason to think he won't do that with you. So be very careful that what you're entertaining, what you're you know, listening to, watching. Deception is rampant in our society and culture, especially, I mean, in a way it always has been. The spirit of Antichrist has been in the church from the very beginning, but 
we it's been prophesied that you know as the birth pains increase to the time of the Lord's return, that that will get more and more prevalent as those days get near. And if we look at um, you know when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, um, "When will these? When will all this happen? What will be the signal of your return and of the end of the world or the end of the age, depending on your translation?" In uh, verse five, it says that, uh, or excuse me, Jesus. The very first thing Jesus said to them is, "Don't let anyone mislead you." For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Then in verse uh, 11 it says many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. And um, if we go to the Lexham English Bible there's a particular verse there that... Uh, let me... Look up the Matthew 24 in that one. In verse 11, many, pro many false prophets will appear and will deceive many. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. I don't think it's a stretch to say that lawlessness I have, has definitely increased in our day. And then verse 24 says it again, for, for, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and will produce great signs and wonders in order to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So deception is going to be at such a fever pitch in the days leading up to the return of Christ that we won't know what to believe. Does that sound familiar? I mean, I feel like we're starting to live in that kind of world now where it's hard to know what to believe, who to trust, what you can depend on. And as bad as we think this is, I think we will look back on these days with fondness and wish for them. I think it's going to get a whole lot worse. Because uh, that's been prophesied in, in the scripture. I just read it to you. And we're not even in the tribulation yet. So when it gets time to get there, imagine the level of deception that's going to be on the earth during the tribulation. The fact that most of the world's population that's left after the rapture will willingly follow and give allegiance to the Antichrist and throw their eternal souls away. I mean, there's a verse in Revelation where it talks about during the the judgments of God that he pours out on earth during that time, that people will shake their fist at God in defiance. As, uh, there's no longer any question. The atheists seem to be, you know, the atheists have been converted. They're no longer atheists. They believe in the existence of Yahweh, of the God of the Bible, and they, many of them, harden their hearts toward him in in anger and in spitefulness rather than humble repentance. And that's a, a, a scary thought that people could be fully aware of who God is and still turn their backs on him. And yet, this is exactly what Satan himself did. You can't get much closer to God than, than Lucifer was at the beginning. 
as we just read here in Ezekiel 28, he, he, the way he was dressed, the way he was adorned, his job, the, the, the job that he had in heaven. I mean, you can't get much better position in the universe than what Lucifer had. And yet he let all that go to, he let, allowed all of that to go to his head. And it cost him everything. So that's one thing we can learn from him is the, the deception. I mean, the mo and that's something I really want to take away from this too, uh, for myself and for others that are listening, which is, the and I think I've said this on previous podcasts, but the more you think, oh, I would never be fooled by him, or I would never be fooled by that, or you know, I'm I'm so in the word. I I know I'm I'm close to Jesus. I know you know I know what is and everything. Once you start thinking that, oh, I've got this down, now you're you're in trouble. <laughs> um, and also, Satan, just like with Adam and Eve, he waited until. He, he waited until the guard was down, and then he went to Eve. Remember, Adam was supposed to subdue everything. Adam was supposed to f fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it and everything. And so S Lucifer goes to Eve. When Again, Adam's right there with her, but he's not doing his job. He's not doing what God told him to do. And so Lucifer has free reign to go into Eve and just uh, go go to Eve and totally deceive her. And then he uses Eve to deceive Adam. And so that's another thing I would like to say with that is that um, just that Lucifer will wait, or Satan will wait until our guard is down. He'll wait until we're at our weakest point. Um, he'll disguise himself, the Bible says, as an angel of light. So you need to be very careful that what you're hearing, anything spiritually, lines up with God's word. And just somebody who quotes the Bible, that's not going to cut it. Because like I said, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus in an attempt to deceive him and to get him to do things that his father would not want him to do. So just because somebody's quoting the Bible doesn't mean they're a Christian. It doesn't mean they're from God. You need to look at the full entirety of what the Scripture says about a subject. You need to look at everything in context and compare it with Scripture. And to be able to do that, you really have to be a student of God's Word. It's not just enough to open your Bible, read a little devotion for three minutes, and then say, well, I did my I did my Bible and spent my time with God for today because I read a little devotional that's half a page long. Oh, you really need to become a student of God's Word. Well, I don't have time. Well, uh, we all have 24 hours each day. None of us are given more or less time than anyone else. It all depends on what we choose to do with that time. So you have as much time as you need to devote to the things that you need, that you truly need in your life. It's just a question of what you're going to prioritize. And the more you become a student of God's word, the more you'll be able to recognize something for its, for it being false or whatever. But if you 
just like I said, you do a little devotional for three minutes and say a 10 second prayer and go up, oh, well, I got my spiritual check mark. I did got my time with God today. I'm good to go. You might want to be careful with that because I don't think you, um, you maybe you want to go a little deeper is what I'm saying. So, as we begin to wrap up this portion of our study, here's a thought-provoking question to consider from our precept study. By when do you think the fall of Satan occurred? So, in other words, the devil was created, or Lucifer was created as an angelic being, he was in service to God, and eventually he allowed pride to go to his head, and he fell and became Satan. So when did that happen? There are some, if you believe in the gap theory, would preach that there was a pre-Adamic civilization, meaning that before Adam and Eve were created, there was another civilization that existed between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And in between that time was an undefined time frame where another civilization existed and that Satan fell during that time and brought sin into the world. And then God had to wipe it out and start over and that's where when Adam and Eve were created and everything that we see for the rest of Genesis. I'm not sure I buy that. Uh, to answer that question, uh, just like everything else we've been doing with our study, we need to go to the Bible of uh, when did Lucifer fall? Well, we see from 1 Corinthians 15.45, it says that Adam was the first man. Is it, um, and, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. So, I mean, it says Adam was the first man. It doesn't say that Adam was the first man in a new civilization. It doesn't say that Adam was the first man in the world that God started over with. Um, it just calls Adam the first man. Now, God did, you know, eventually start over with, after the flood, after the flood of Noah's day with uh, Noah and his family. But even the people that were first born after them, it didn't say, well, this was the first man. Because there was only one first man, and that was Adam. So there was no, there's no uh, ambiguity there. Adam was the first man, so there couldn't have been some pre-Adamite civilization because Adam was the first one. You know, in, in Exodus chapter twenty, verse eleven, which we've also looked at during this study, it says that in six days God created the heavens and the earth. Um. You know, so it doesn't say uh, millions of years God recreated or God created the heavens and the earth, and then millions of years later he started over when the first civilization completely fell. It didn't say that. In six days God created the heavens and the earth. It points back to the original creation week as the model for the work week with people resting on the Sabbath. Again, that's Exodus chapter twenty, verse eleven. And you know, according to Romans five fourteen, it says that. Death began reigning with Adam, not before Adam. You know, if you listen to people who believe in the gap theory or believe in theistic evolution, whatever, they believe that there was a lot of death before Adam. But according to 
to the Bible and what we've been studying, it says that death was brought into the world because of sin and that Adam and Eve were the first sinners and it credits Adam ultimately with that sin. Um, it doesn't, I mean, both were responsible because both were punished, but Adam gets the the big result from that because, you know, it, it talks about Adam's fall and all that. And so there is... Again, this is all pointing to the fact that there is no, there's no evidence in the Bible for a pre-Adamic civilization. So if that's, and, and after laying all this out, we'll get into, so when did Satan fall? Because everyone who believes in the gap theory believes that Satan fell from heaven during that time. Well, if he did, then what is, oh, excuse me, if he did not, and there's no gap theory, no gap theory, then when did he fall? That's what we're getting to here. So, if we're going to look at when the, um, when the angels were created, well, it says in uh, Job 38, in verse uh, 4, God is interrogating Job, and he says, Where were you at my laying the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you possess understanding. Who determined its measurement? Yes, you do know. Or who stretched the measuring line upon it? On, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars of God were singing together, and all the sons of God are angels, because remember, the sons of God, we read in Job chapter 1, if you go back to our last podcast, referring to angels, and all the angels were shouting for joy. So when did that happen? That happened in... And, um, well, the land was created on day three. Remember, God said that he wanted all the waters to be gathered into one place. And then he said, let the dry ground appear. Well, that happened on day three, which would mean, and that, that would be the foundations of the earth, because when, when you study this scientifically, and there's lots of good videos on this that will explain the foundations of the earth and what that is. Some people have considered the Bible unscientific because they think it teaches that our planet Earth, the globe, is like sitting on foundations uh, when obviously we've been to outer space and it doesn't say that. But you got to remember the Earth there is referring to the land. And the uh, there's a scientific term for all this and I'm, I'm struggling to remember all that at the moment and I apologize. But... The point is, is that the foundations of the earth, the found, or the foundations for the land, because the land was brought forth when all the waters were gathered on day three. So that means if the angels were rejoicing on day three when the foundations of the earth were laid, if all the angels were shouting for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid, and that was on day three when the foundations of the earth were laid. Then that would mean that the angels had to be created on either day one or day two of the creation week. Not on, you know, it, it wasn't like some pre-Adamic civilization. Because again, as we just read, Adam was the first man. The New Testament confirms that over and over again. So then if the angels were created on day one or day two, 
And throughout that entire week, God said that everything was very good. Well, for everything to be good, and when God it says it's particularly at the end of the week, and God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Well, for everything to be very good, then everything had to actually still be good. And there's no reference to sin prior to that. So it would tell, it, there's no reference to Satan falling from heaven. It's elsewhere in the Bible. But if everything was very good, then that would tell me at least that again, angels were created on day one or day two. Because they couldn't have been created after day three because the angels were rejoicing, according to the book of Job, when um, the heavens and the earth were, were created. Uh, so the angels were created on day one or day two, including Lucifer. And then the fall from heaven, Lucifer's fall from heaven, would have happened sometime after the creation week. Sometime between Genesis 1 and 2, which both cover the first creation week, and Genesis 3. So Satan fell sometime between Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 3, when we see him in the garden as the serpent. That's the answer to that question. So is there anything that we have seen from Genesis 3 that we can apply to our lives? Well, what I mainly would want to focus on there, and I would basically be repeating myself because of everything that I've already said about this in previous shows. But with Genesis 3... What we, what we mainly learn from that, let me just go there real quick, because mainly what I want to focus on is um, let me go to Genesis 3 here. I want to focus on the verses where Satan is tempting Eve again. So let's go to Genesis 3, and it says, The, ser the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from the trees, from any of the trees in the garden? And so that's what I, I, I want to I focus on these verses. And the first thing that we can apply to our lives is, again, Satan will try to deceive you. And he will try to shift your focus away from what God has already given you. And he'll try to get you to focus on what he is saying no to. You know, if he can get you discontented with what you have. Remember the Apostle Paul said, I've been rich, I've been poor, I've been abased, I've been abounding in all things. I've learned to rejoice and be content in all things. When If Satan can get you discontented, I mean, Adam and Eve literally lived in a perfect environment and Satan was able to tempt them into being discontent, which then led to them sinning by becoming discontent. If, when you start to feel discontented, then you're, you're, again, you're in a danger zone. Now you've opened a door for the devil to come and tempt you, or one of his demons, or what have you. You must not eat. Um, let's see, then, of course, then we have Eve. I won't go through this whole thing again, but then Eve responds to him, and then uh, Satan says, you won't surely die. So then he deceives, he gets us to look at what we don't have rather than what we do have, and then he gets us to, and then he openly contradicts God's word and lies about God 
And he's doing that today. Look at all the false religions in the world. Look at, and this is something, this is a talking point that's often used by people who don't agree with the Bible. They'll say, well, um, look at all the other religions in the world, but of course yours is the only right one. Well, that's an ingenious plan of the devil to have so many different false belief systems competing with each other. Because, I mean, if you only have two, if God, you know, if God says one thing and Satan says another, that's a 50-50 shot. But when you have one source of truth and multiple divided sources of falsehood, then you can distract people with debating over all the different falsehoods and then the truth just becomes yet another one in the mix. It's really, it's, it's a smart plan by the kingdom of darkness to not just have, well, here's what God says and here's what we say. No, let's, let's have different belief systems and different religions and different this is and that. And, and let's, and let's give them all some commonalities too so we can say all roads lead to God. See, the deception of the devil and his kingdom is so shrewd, just like he was. Like it's described him here in Genesis 3. He really is that shrewd, and he really is that cunning and conniving. That he gets us distracted by all these things. That we just, we miss the truth. And that's the main thing that I would want to get you to that I would take away from Genesis 3 in regards to the serpent. That and the fact that, you know, once he caused division, once he caused, once he tempted, I should say he didn't cause, he didn't force her to eat it, didn't force Adam to eat it. Once he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, then you see the division of human relationships that wasn't there before. There's now a wall uh, between Adam and Eve as far as, you know, they, they start sewing things together to hide themselves whereas before they were naked and not ashamed. And then the relationship between people and God is disrupted, which is ultimately what Satan wants most of all, is for that to be disrupted. He can't hurt God, he can't get rid of God, he can't overthrow God, because he's already tried that. So he gets to God by getting to us. So now we've looked at the tempter, and we've gained valuable insights into his crafty ways. And so now we're going to take a closer look at temptation. And we're going to gain some valuable insights that should help us to be able to resist whatever comes our way that is against the Word of God. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Now, as we finish up at the last 25 minutes of our podcast today. So as we begin to look at sin and temptation, we need to ask ourselves a question. Is it a sin to be tempted? If you are tempted to sin, is that a sin itself? And when does sin occur? Is there a progression that leads to sin? Is there some kind of a warning? Or is it just, does it just happen really quick and before you know it, you sinned and you didn't even know it was coming and just there it was, boom. 
and I'm, there's varying opinions on this, but the most important thing that matters isn't the varying opinions. It's what God's perspective is on sin. And because uh, he lays he lays out in his word a roadmap to sin, basically, so that we so that we can be warned of okay, here's what here's what um, here's what Satan will do, and his playbook doesn't change. So it's important for us to to look at the process of sin and to see it. So that we can recognize it and be aware of it to stop ourselves from going down that road. And so we pray that God will open the eyes of our understanding. And I, I pray that he will tear down all the strongholds in your mind that your enemy the devil has erected through humanistic thinking, vain philosophies and psychologies and the traditions of men. Because there's a lot of that going on in the world, you know, between, there's all sorts of philosophies out there, there's all sorts of psychology out there, there's church traditions and man's traditions and humanism and, and atheism and all these other isms that will try to deceive us and draw us away from the kingdom of God. So I pray that you'll be, as we we start to study temptation and how that all works, that we will be prepared to deal with that. And also a goal of this is that God would create within us such a desire and a hunger for righteousness that the goal of our lives will be to be holy even as God is holy, because that's what the Bible says. And that this desire will cause us to be so weary of sin that we abstain from every form of evil, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. It tells you to stay. Now, there are some translations that says stay away from the very appearance of evil. Um, that's not the best translation of that. That's the traditional wording that's in like King James and some of the others. But First Thessalonians 5.22, for example, the New Living Translation says stay away from every kind of evil. And so that's what we want to be able to do through our study. That's our goal as we study sin and temptation. And as we begin, as we begin this part of our study again, it will take us back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'll read those again, um, and then we're going to zoom in on some of them. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the, from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat from it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat as soon as you eat it and you will be like God knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. 
At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So what is the serpent, or the devil, or Satan, trying to get Eve to do here? Again, I've been through this before. He's trying to get her to doubt God's word. He's getting, he shifts her focus away from what God has, all that God's given her to do, to the things that he says no to. So that she will become discontented, even in a perfect environment where everything is provided for, where everything is good, there's no bad, there's no experience of bad, there's no any of that. And Satan gets her to, to buy into that. And if we look at Genesis 3.6, there are some things that, that lead up to the eating of the fruit. It says, the woman was convinced... She saw that the tree was beautiful and it looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. So first she became convinced of the devil's lies. You can't become convinced of the devil's lies if you're not even listening to him. So anything that's anti-God, you need to kick it out. You can't become convinced of something that, and that doesn't mean that we're ne we, we can get to a point where we go through our lives and we never hear any falsehood. We don't all become monks in monasteries or nuns in monasteries and all and sit there and try to keep, our, keep ourselves pure from contamination by not even being around it. That's, that's like putting yourself in a spiritual quarantine and that's foolish stupidity. It's just as dumb spiritually as it is in the physical world. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that before this turns into a COVID-19 podcast instead of a Genesis podcast. So, the woman became convinced, though. That was her first thing. When she first heard him, um, she, she negotiated or engaged with that deception because she probably couldn't recognize it. But as soon as she got, as soon as that first doubt was there, so he convinced her. Then after he convinced her of what he was saying, then she looked and saw that the tree was beautiful and it looked delicious. Once you become convinced that you're missing out, once you become convinced that there's something to be gained from sin, Gosh, it starts to look really attractive, doesn't it? In fact, it looks delicious. You start to want it. You start to desire it. There's some of you that... Well, I, well, I don't know. I know that this really speaks to me on a very personal level. Because I've dealt with this. Once you become convinced that there's something to be had from sin that you might enjoy, why all of a sudden it starts to look all the more attractive. So then you partake of it. And then you can get others to partake of it. It's not, not just enough to sin. Well, now you got to spread it. Hey, this is really good. You should try this. Besides, who are they to judge? 
<laughs> so now, let's compare what we see here in Genesis 3 with 1 John 2.16. When we go to we go to the book of First John. There's there's something very interesting here. Um, let's see. Let's go to First John. I'm trying to type this in. Give me a moment. So when we start looking at this from First John two, and we're going to go down to. Verse 15, there's one paragraph here. It goes from verses 15 through 17. It says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a... This is the New Living Translation. In the traditional, it says, verse 16, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you look at this in... First Corinthians two, uh, First Corinthians, excuse me, First John two sixteen, in the um, New Living Translation, it says, "For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions, a craving for physical pleasure." Well, where do we see that here? Well, Eve saw that it. It looked desirable. It looked good. The fruit from the tree. A craving for everything we see. She saw it and she wanted it. She saw it. She craved it. She began to desire it. Pride in our achievements and possessions. What did the devil tempt her with? He said um, that you would be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's why God doesn't want you to do this. So he tempted her with pride. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's all right there. And she partook of that. Let's go up to the NIV and read it there. 1 John 2.16 For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So we see all those temptations. And really, you can boil all sins down to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. It's like the three categories of sins. I'm telling you, the Bible thinks of everything. The Bible is its own commentary. You, I mean, we have right there laid out in Scripture the three categories of sins. That's available. Um, and Satan tempts Eve with all three. And and Adam also. And so, after we've looked at those three categories of sins from 1 John 2.16, then um, we go to Joshua chapter 6. And there we have the account of the fall of Jericho. In God's instructions regarding taking the spoils of war. And so, if we read Joshua chapter 6, verses 15 through 19, and then Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 26, and 
we're going to look at that and we're going to read that. And then there's some things I want to observe from that particular text. And I'm going to read the, these two passages, Joshua 6, 5 through 19, and Joshua 7, 1 through 26, using the New American Standard Bible. Because there's a certain phrase that's used 10 times in these two passages. called un, It says it's un, under the ban. So we're going to take... We're going to take a look at these and we're going to look at, as, as we read Aiken's confession, note what led to his taking things which were under the ban. So first let's look at this, uh, these two passages. We're going to read these and we're going to highlight certain things here about this under the ban phrase. And so here it says, Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times, only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban, and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that they do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Why? Because they took things that were under the ban. And what led to the taking of these things? Well, first we see the result that the anger of the Lord burned against them, burned against the sons of Israel because some things that were taken that were under the ban. But let's keep reading here. What led up to this? So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, and they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent, so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So they saw, so they they were, they they were going to the land, and they said, you know, these people, they're not very strong, they're they're not very numerous. We don't need to send many of our people to get involved in this because, I mean, they're nothing. We we can take them, and they got defeated, and. 
the defeat caused their hearts to melt and become as water. It's a, like a word for, they, they became very afraid. They became scared because of this. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. These are all signs of mourning and repentance. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people all over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So Joshua says, hey, if, if we die, our enemies are going to surround us, cut us off and kill us. And then, well, God, what are you going to do if we die? Who's going to stand up for you? Who's going to speak for you? Who's going to point the way to you? <laughs> so Joshua is basically saying, hey, you know, your your reputation's on the line here too, God. We're, the only, we're your people. Without us, you're screwed. And so the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. Look at the things that's happening to our country. And apply some of this there. What, what sort of... How, how have we transgressed our covenant with God? Anyway. I will not be with you anymore, God says, unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. There's that phrase again, under the ban. So they took some things under the ban, and he says, Unless you destroy the things that are under the ban, I'm not going to be with you anymore, God says. Rise up, God said. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. What sort of enemies do we have? We can't stand against our enemies until we get rid of the things under the ban. Verse 14, In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who takes is taken the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near, man by man. And Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near, man by man. And Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. 
when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, fifty shekels in weight. Then I coveted them, and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him, uh, and Achan confessed. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 2.1 calls Jesus our advocate. In the Old Testament, before the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no advocate here. You sin, you pay the consequences. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran in the tent, and all that happened. They poured it out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Of his anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. And Achor means trouble. So, a similar thing happened here. If we go back up to Achan and we see what he did. What does he say here? He said, I've sinned against the Lord. He saw. He coveted. He took. And he concealed. What did Adam and Eve do? Eve saw. She saw the fruit of the tree. She saw it was good. She saw it looked good. She took. She saw, she took, then she coveted, or excuse me, she, she saw, she coveted, then she took, and then she concealed what she did. They concealed what they did. She saw, she coveted, she took, she gave to Adam, and then they concealed what they did. It's the same playbook. What's the first step in that? You see. That's why, you know, the eyes are the windows to the soul. That's why we're warned in the Bible to be careful what we let our eyes look upon. That can be, that's the first step in every temptation, is to see. Once you see it, then you want to take it. Or, or then you start to covet it, pardon me, after you see it. Then after you covet it, oh man, I really want to have that. That's so why one of the commandments is you shall not covet. I don't really want that. Then you take it. Then after you take it and you use it, then you conceal it. You hide it. And it becomes a barrier between you and God and you and other people because you've concealed your sin. So I've got 30 seconds left in this podcast. And so I'll stop there for now. And we'll pick up with this 
this whole thing about temptation and all that, we'll pick up with that next time as we continue with this lesson on sin and temptation. It's been good to be with you all today. This is the Wisdom on Wheels podcast, and I'm again, I look forward to doing this again soon. Bye for now.